You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hey, welcome back to the Delirious Nomads podcast. Uh, Matt Bacon here. I am once again without my co-host. Chris Santos, but I do have a very dear friend of mine on the podcast, a much more known podcaster than I, one of the most interesting and like terrifyingly intelligent people I know, Jesse Cannon of Use Formation and like 80,000 other podcasts like Daily Beast and all these other scary things that my dad listens to. <laughs> I mean, my dad listens to is not a nice thing to say to people it's like the same thing as when you tell a musician oh i used to love your records also jesse like low-key invented pop punk so like that's uh, not true either he produced all the important pop punk records in the first half of the audies yeah well i i did my damage then and uh now i have no idea what goes on because the, all the pop punk either sounds like the 1975 or i heard one that sounded like country which really not my vibe. And then uh, the rest of it just sounds, you know, genres die from time to time and then they get new life breathed into it. But whatever is happening right now, this is some serious deathbed shit with pop punk. So wait one second, because pop punk is like secretly an undercurrent on this show. Uh huh. Uh huh. You don't think that like, because I actually think pop punk is in an okay place with bands like Koyo. Uh, I just saw Mom Jeans headlining uh, at Furnace Fest, stage at Furnace Fest the other day. You know, I see that. I, I feel like that scene is doing reasonably well. Okay. So so first off, since I did Koyo's last record, it would be wrong for me to say anything. But the reason I won't say anything is, one, I listen to that record all the time, even for pleasure after I was done with it. Two, I don't consider them a pop punk band. I consider them like the lighter side of hardcore. Like Title Fight was when they, on their first two records. Okay. We all know these genre names are total bullshit. I mean, I enjoy Koyo for being a pop-punk band that does not look like a pop-punk band, especially the singer. Yeah, I mean, to me, they're just like the the breed of title fight and transit uh, carried on. But That's to fair. me, that wasn't pop-punk. So, uh, but regardless, no, I think pop-punk is actually in a terrible place. And, and I should say this, like, there's a lot of people who when they've had their time with the genre, like, you know, like I call myself a lapsed record producer. I, don't, I no longer produce records. I got no skin in the pop-punk game. I've been... Uh, but I'm a person who wants pop punk to be good. I'm a person who wants all 
genres to be good. I like listening to all genres. But I also, as an old fuck, can accept that there is waves to genres where they get stagnant and without inspiration. And this is a bad era for pop punk, if you ask me, because like, you know, it's even just like the thing of like the lack of authenticity. Like I hear these bands sing something like, uh, I'm a, ma- I'm a man and uh, I'm going to romance you, baby. Yeah, I'm sexy. You're sexy. And it's like, you sound like a fucking child pretending that you're an adult. Like this sounds pathetic. No one believes you're romancing a model and fucking her. You sound like a dweeb. And it just sounds really inauthentic to me right now. Whereas I do hear bands in other genres that are just as immature as pop punk doing very innovative, interesting things. I mean, the hyper pop kids are younger and sound way more authentic. So let's dive into that for a second, actually, because we had another topic planned, but I feel like this is almost more interesting. You and I have gone back and forth quite a bit uh, about sort of, in your view, the death of rock music in the broad sense in the industry, right? So rock in the broadest sense, encompassing punk and metal, also encompassing sort of pop punk, pop rock, etc. I, I like to call it heavy music. Yes. So break that down for a second. Well, I mean, one, what it is, is that a tool like Chartmetric can show you something like, for example, one of the things you and I went through is on Chartmetric, you can see that every single black metal band is in a decline in their career. There's no ascendant black metal group that is considered one of the big ones that is doing numbers like they used to four or five years ago on streaming. That as streaming is growing, less people are listening to it and less people are interested. Now, some could say, yes, a lot of the classic records were made of that time. But really what it is also is, is a trend is, and a lot of people don't realize this because they're stuck in their bubble, uh, whereas I'm paid to observe tons of different genres and do analyses of it. So what I see, though, over and over again is that the biggest rock bands – now, if we're if, – if we ta- and I also wanted to say this. Like, we're taking out of the equation 1975, Imagine Dragons type ones because those are outliers. But, like, rock bands that we would see at a rock festival, like those even more mainstream than all those festivals you go to, continually the biggest ones are having smaller numbers than they previously did, even though streaming's expanding because – legacy rock is in a major decline. And I happen to think that there's two sides to this, that one, you know, there's just times where genres get stagnant. Rock was, you know, famously people think of Brooklyn as a famous buzz place where big bands come from. But I've lived here long enough that I know that before the strokes, you were cursed as a New York band. Like no one would want to sign you. No one, no one cared about New York bands at all. They cared more about the Jersey suburbs than they cared about New York, which is fucking ridiculous. Even the Long Island suburbs of Long Island's trash. People literally just like issued uh, New York culture and things come in waves. I do believe rock will be back, but it also is with diminishing returns. And do you see this with jazz is that like jazz just sure. Somebody could breathe some life into the genre really fast for a minute and they could find something new to do with it, but it's a whimper instead of a huge explosion. And that whimper keeps getting lighter and lighter as you get a Kamasi Washington or somebody who really does something interesting with the genre. It's, more of an outlier thing than a movement as each genre withers away. Yeah. And that's my TED Talk. So I have a couple counterpoints on that. My main viewpoint there is I think you might be analyzing some of this incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I would use the black metal example. 
you know, so like, okay, so the streaming numbers for Dark Throne, Immortal, yeah, whatever. Let's just say you know they're broadly down over time. Actually, yeah, what we when you and I were looking at it, like what I told you is the sad thing is is the only band that this is not the case with is Burzum, which is fucking horrifying. Well, you know, Italy just elected a fascist. It makes sense. I mean, you know, I never actually listened to Burzum until I had a Jewish roommate. Like, so it's just like, oh, that guy's a Nazi. Whatever, I don't have to listen to him. I'm fine. And then I had this roommate who was like, we should listen to, we should watch Thulean Perspective and listen to Philosophism. And I was like, oh my god. Kanye wore a White Lives Matter shirt today, so you get it. Anyway, so the point being, you know, okay, so broad strokes, Dark Throne are down, Dark Funeral are down, whatever. Okay, yeah. On some level, I think that's because your average fan is listening to a more diverse range of things, like your average metal fan. Right. Like, I think that the flip side of music is that there is literally a finite amount you can consume and that, you know, obviously classic records will always be classic records, but simultaneously sort of nerd genres where a big part of black metal is uncovering the next new weird thing, you know, and a big part of rock and metal in general is sort of this baseball card collector mentality. I I do have the pushback that that's, not the case broadly in any genre that when you actually study consumption closely that yes the nerds you and i go out and hang out with every night are like that but we're the abnormality in the actual when you study the average music listener they're they are listening to a more vast you you are right about that than ever before measured in streaming that yes the baseline has gotten larger of what they listen to in diversity but it still is proportional to what all Nielsen and everything was measuring 20 years ago, which is that really like an 80, 20 rule, just as like everything is, is that there's 20% of the nerds like you and I who are listening to, you know, like if you look at my playlist of what I listen to in a week, I'm sure I'm in the upper percentile of people who, you know, the top 1% of people who listen to a different number of artists a week. But that percentile doesn't seem to have changed since it since it's been trying to be measured throughout really since the late 90s is as long back of a study as I could think of seeing anything on that. Okay, that's fair. Because, I mean, I always kind of thought that, that that sort of nerd side and discovery side was a big factor. So, like, here's the thing I'll concede to you. You are right that some of what plays into this is that people are listening to a more diverse subset as streaming goes on. We do see that consumers are broadening in small strokes out of their bubbles into being more vast listeners as they get more fluent in streaming. But with that said, the reason that that's not a good counterpoint is that what we keep seeing is in other genres, the big artists keep getting bigger. Now you could argue, yes, well, but we're metal and heavy music is different and we're nerds and things like that. But really what the problem is, is that when you measure the genre tags as a whole, they're going down. That's the problem. So, like, that's the counterpoint to your point. Yeah, which I think is both a little existentially terrifying, but I also think it's one of those things where, like, I was the youngest person going to metal bars. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus when I was 19. Yeah, no, I I started going to, the, the, to Mars Bar at 15 years old. I mean, sure, yeah. Yeah, because I moved to New York City when I was 19. I started going to metal bars. And I thought there'd be like other young kids sneaking into shows and there wasn't. Yeah. Well, I was friends with every one of them who was. Yeah. I didn't have that. And I'm still like one of the youngest people at St. Vitus Bar on a given night, for instance. Uh, Well, I mean, half my age is still legal to get in. So, you know, I don't really associate with them. 
No, I, no, but what I'm saying is the average age. I feel like the average age at sort of your average rock bar is a lot closer to yours than it is to mine. Yeah. You know, there is an interesting thing that youth segregates itself oftentimes. And so, like, here's a good example is when I go to a hyper pop concert, I am usually only one of two people who are above 30. And, you know, I'm closer to 45 now than I am anything else. So there is a thing that youth always puts this up like I listen to a lot of music where when I go to the show I'm the only old man there so there is this like thing that I think what it may have always be is that you and I were listening to some more mature music for our age and maybe that's the real outlier that we should be looking at whereas I also you know like consumption is always highest with the youth yeah and that's kind of that's kind of what I'm trying to say here but the, the funny thing is everybody thought streaming would change that, but it really has not because everybody thought there was a price barrier during the CD and the vinyl era kept kids from doing it. But it's like, no, that's what you spent your money on when you were a kid. Now you just don't have to. Yeah, no. But what it is is that when you're a kid, you have more free time to listen to music. Whereas like if you have a job in an office, how many records can you really listen to in a day? When you're producing podcasts all day like me, you can't listen to music just when it's run. Yeah, exactly. I have like a fake job with Cannibal Corpse, and I listen to 10 records a day. Yeah, but I listen all day when I can in between things, so. Yeah, what I'm saying is I think that this is sort of weird, but as the fan base is literally dying, as in aging, Mm -hmm. that makes the streaming numbers die because older people don't stream as much, right? Because that Uh, number goes straight down. No? I mean, this, this this is actually some of the problem is that what we're not seeing is because you have to see streaming adoptions happening with older people now. But I think you need to like make sure you correlate the numbers is that so much of music is always discovery and a lot of what keeps anything alive. Like here, what keeps Metallica streaming numbers alive is not people my age who were 12 and saw the one video premiere. It's new people getting into it at like 18 and being like, I'm going to go to the gym and work out to load, man. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. That's what keeps streaming numbers alive. So like, that's why I don't really agree with that assessment. Okay. Think of it this way. You know, my father used to laugh at me all the time because my favorite record of all time is The Clash London Calling. Sure. And it's made a year before I was born. He's like, I'd never listened to anything that was made a year before I was born. Are you fucking kidding me? 1944? What the fuck was there to listen to? Have you thought about that, by the way? This is completely unrelated, but have you read that Chuck Klosterman thing about the war and music? I actually have to be honest with you. Everybody tells me to read that Chuck Klosterman thing, but um, I unfortunately can only read books that uh, I'm doing podcasts about because my life is um, work. Basically, he has this point, and I think this does tie back into the rock and metal dying thing. Was this in the 90s book? Uh, no, this was just a book of essays. Gotcha. Um, where he talks about how, for the first time, World War II is really interesting because it's really the only time where the average music that someone born before World War II listened to had nothing to do with the music someone born after World War II listened to. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, if you're born in 47, you listen to rock. If you're born, and then if you're that person's parent born in 20, you listen to jazz and, like, blues. Yeah, the term I heard, heard for this recently was for turning. And from what I can tell, and I, I don't, and I feel like this is tied in, but I'm not entirely sure how. But from what I can tell, that never happened again. Like the music I listen to, even though I listen to extreme whatever music, like my dad listened to Motorhead. Like he gets, he gets Cannibal Corpse. 
you know, my sister likes Taylor Swift or whatever, or Lucy Dacus, you know, my parents listen to Joni Mitchell. There's a clear line between Joni Mitchell and Lucy Dacus. The line between, I don't know, uh, Fats Waller and the Beatles is a little, is a lot fuzzier, especially just on first listen. But here's a, here's a funny thing though. So what I think we might be missing though is, so take what all of the boomers will tell you about TV at the time is they're all having Beatlemania. They're waiting for Elvis to be on TV, but then they have fucking Gene Krupa and Frank Sinatra and all these fucking old codgers that are on mainstream television all day because they didn't want to have fucking, you know, Elvis shaking his uh, hips and being a pedo on TV. I think they were okay with pedos on TV if we look at a lot of the relationships those other guys had. Thank you for that fact correction. Well, I was thinking too well of society to think that pedos were not allowed on no, TV like, then. And I was wrong. Fitness, but like, <laughs> we only got rid of, we only like started to condemn that shit after like 1980. This is true. This is true. The point being, though, they all felt like their parents' culture was bludgeoning them with it, just as I, you know, like I, I posted it today. Like, there's that Nation of Ulysses song that says, uh, I ain't talking about no Beatles song written a thousand years before I was born. Like, I felt oppressed by classic rock when all I wanted to be listening to was, you know, new screeching weasel or whatever the fuck I liked, you know, Archer's a Loaf as a teenager. And I think there's always that oppression and there's that line of that adults keep pushing their fucking culture into kids' lives that has passed. And what, so all of this is to say, I think one of the biggest things people in our culture miss about all this is that um, when everybody's like, oh, when's there going to be another Nirvana? I'm like, I'm sorry, you cucks are so rock-based that you missed that his name yeah. was Skrillex and it happened in 2012 because Skrillex is when you see EDM become the predominant culture in America it start to ascend over even hip hop. And now when you see consumption of culture, hip hop, I would argue drives the most culture and drives the most things that happen in the vast number of America. But EDM is actually the predominant consumption of America. Interesting. And Europe. So I think people just often miss it because they're not immersed in that culture. But like, it's the same way that when you and I were young, that pop music was more predominant and more for your generation. Hip hop was also very dominant in that. But I'd also argue that that's when pop became hip hop became pop, and there wasn't much of a demarcator between the two. I'm really using these big words too much. I'm really gotta stop doing that. Anywho, so that 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 would be my big culturally heady argument about what everybody's missing on this. And broadly, I agree with you because I, I think there's definitely Finn McKenty even had like a bit about this at one point about how like to like to think that rock like I think that all the people who think rock is gonna come back are like not like those people can't even be included in the conversation on some level because they're just believing in this weird fairy story that doesn't make a lot of sense. To me, it's just like this thing of like, it's really what the definition of the fluidity of rock is, is, you know, like so many songs when you listen to the radio have guitar in them. I mean, my friend Charlie Harding, who does the podcast switched on pop did a phenomenal episode, like where he showed how much of the pop charts has guitar right now. But like the real thing is, it's just like, well, do we define rock and roll by this dumb Rolling Stones definition? And I don't mean that by the magazine. Obviously, I don't disparage my employer. I mean, the definition that everybody would do back then, which was that satisfaction is like one of the first rock songs because of the syncopation 
and it has the three chord structure, the verse chorus, and that's it. Whereas like with the differences with the EDM is, is EDM is more about tension and release than it is about uh, verse, chorus, verse. Sure. And so like, and you know, whereas classical is much more about movements and like if you d define it that way. But so the funny thing is, is this is why you could say that what's happening in pop and uh, hip hop is actually rock still, is it still uses rock song format. Is that its first chorus, first chorus? Sure. It often has that structure. So it, it's all to say that that border is fluid. But what I will say is, you know, even like the laughable thing I say about the Grammys every year is you look at who's nominated for best rock in the Grammys. It's like uh, Lord won one year for the best rock album. And it was like, there is one song with guitar on the Lord record. Muse won with Madness. And it's like their song is all keyboards, sampling, and uh, one guitar solo. Well, yeah, but also because I think, and this is an important piece, is I think rock is more of a, I think song structure is obviously one key component to it, but I also think it's sort of a energy. Because there's even, you know, yeah. for example, there, there'll be bands sort of under the rock genre who rock versus ones who don't rock. You know, like I think if you use, to use like a metal example, you know, I think a band like Yob, are you familiar, Jesse? Uh, this is like one of those bands that I hit play on and I go, that's not for me and I turn it off. Okay. Well, there's like, what I'm saying is there's certain bands you see live and it's a rock show. Mm -hmm, yes. Well, rock show and rock music are different. You could argue Steve Aoki puts on more of a rock show than an EDM show. Absolutely. And that's what's interesting is I think, and that's also what's kind of fascinating to me about sort of like Monty Pittman and the people who kind of came after him. People are playing in sort of relative... So Monty Pittman is a guitarist from Madonna, for those who don't know. I don't know that. And he's basically kind of inspired the school of thing, this school of guitarists, where what you see that's really interesting is like pop shows that have nothing ostensibly to do with rock will have a shredder now. Yes, 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 yes. And like, and it's still not guitar music, but it adds... The heaviness is obviously helpful for a big show, and then the flashiness is helpful. But that started with Michael Jackson with Steve Stevens, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, because that, preda that predates Madonna for sure. I'd bet a toe on it. Yeah, whatever. There's enough money you should not have to worry about. But like stuff like that, I think, gets worked into the culture. You know, so I think that to kind of look at the death of rock is to sort of misunderstand its real meaning if that makes sense sure in the culture at large no i have a wrench to throw in this whole conversation Hit do you me. know what the do you know what the number one song of the pop charts is this week what is it it's steve lacy's bad habit have you heard that song no it's a rock song it's all syncopation it's guitar based it's three chords it's fucking amazing. It's one of my favorite songs ever. It was one of those songs that I was like, I never have where I hear a song on the radio and like you turn on the car midway through a song and you're like, what the fuck? Like, this is a breath of fresh air. This is amazing. But Steve Lacey's been an amazing producer and a, just also a one-of-a-kind human being who's fucking genius. But like even that song too, um, somebody pointed out that it's the only song that has had an acapella breakdown in like 20 years on the pop charts. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, so like it's a one of a kind song, but it is undeniably a rock song. It's three chords, maybe four. Oh yeah, four. You know, this is kind of the final piece. Is like there's a lot of stuff like that that I think people don't want to admit. Like the same with like Olivia Rodrigo. Like "Good for You" is obviously it's a Paramore song, and we're all. No, I disagree on that 100%, but that's a different story. It's a great pop punk song is what it is. It's a great pop song, but that's also definitely a rock song. 
pop punk song, I'd, I'd argue. Yeah, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's pop punk that rocks. Whereas, like, something like Harry Styles, it's just to circle back on, like, what is rock? Like, something like Harry Styles does not really rock to me, even though he has a band and is much more rock-oriented than most of his peers in the pop world. When I listen to Harry Styles music, it sounds like a... <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on this podcast, giving us some of your valuable time. I am extremely grateful to you. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad I could end it with saying something really cancelable. Yeah, fucking stressing me out over here. Thank you for coming on. We'll be back next week. I'll see you soon, Jesse. Take care. Thank you so much. Sounds good. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.